everything was totally, utterly, completely dark and silent. And through the darkness, I heard a voice saying, Albi, this is Eva Gurido. You're in the Maputo Central Hospital in Mozambique. Your arm is in lamentable condition. You have to face the future with courage. And into the darkness, I said, what happened? And a woman's voice said, there was a car bomb. I fainted back into the darkness again, but with a sensation of total joy and euphoria. I'd been aware of something terrible happening to me, of this darkness enveloping me completely, of being pulled, people speaking, I thought I'd been kidnapped to be taken back from Mozambique into apartheid South Africa. And I remembered vaguely shouting, leave me, leave me, in English and in Portuguese, but not too loudly because I was a judge in a public place. And then feeling angry if they're going to kidnap me, at least they can put me in a car with decent springs because I felt the pain as we jolted along. and then back into the darkness. I'm suddenly conscious and feeling very light, lying flat on my back, and I tell myself a joke. The joke about Jaime Cohn, who, like me, is a Jew. He falls off a bus, and he gets up, and he does this, and someone said, Jaime, I didn't know you were Catholic. What do you mean Catholic? Spectacles, testicles, wallet, and watch. <laughs> and I started with testicles, all in place. Wallet, my heart is okay. Spectacles, I feel my head, there's no crater there. And then my hand slides down, and I discover I've lost my arm. I'd only lost an arm. Every freedom fighter goes to sleep every night wondering, will I wake up in the morning? Every day, will I get through the day? Will I be brave when they come for me? It had happened to me and I'd got through and I fainted back into delirium. About four months later, I'm recovered to the extent that I'm out of hospital. I can walk unsteadily. And there's a ring at the doorbell where I'm house where I'm staying, and I open the door, and there are two people from the ANC leadership who've come to greet me and welcome my recuperation. One is John and Kadi Meng, a trade union leader, like my dad Sonny Sachs had been a trade union leader. His face is very long and very grave. The other is Jacob Zuma whom I'd known when he'd been the chief representative of the ANC in Mozambique. And Zuma has a big, long smile on his face. And we sit down and we talk, and I'm trying to encourage Nkadi Meng to smile, and I'm telling him the joke, and he won't smile. His son had been blown up also by 
apartheid agents before. And Zuma is engaging with my storytelling and I go through the story slowly, slowly, slowly and he laughs a little bit more and a little bit more African style, drawing me in, enjoying, savoring the detail. You don't rush to get to the end of the story. You tell it. It becomes a conversation piece and interaction between two human beings. And when I finally tell him the story about Jaime Cohen, he almost rolls off roaring with laughter off, off the chair. He's enjoying the story so much. And when I wrote about it in the soft bench, the freedom fighter, which I believe a number of you have been given, I commented on how important it was to me to see the way in which my Jewish joke is linking up with the Zulu African sense of humor. And this is how we will build our new South Africa, when we bring in what we've got, who we are, and we share, and we enjoy our common humanity. Years later, I'm sitting on the bench in my green robes as a judge of the Constitutional Court. And the question is, does the law have a sense of humor? A journalist student now qualified brought out a whole series of t-shirts under the rubric, Laugh It Off. And one of them lampooned the South African, not South African breweries, calling Black Label Beer using its logo and said calling Black Labor 300 years of oppression and was just having fun and they were selling it on the internet to young maverick people who enjoyed that kind of thing. The Dutch producers of calling were not amused. They didn't laugh, they went to court and they got an order restraining the distribution of the t-shirts. It went to the Supreme Court of Appeal and they also said you can poke fun, you can denounce the labor practices, but you can't use the property, the logo of calling black labor, black label to do so. It came to the Constitutional Court. We all agreed that there was no shown detriment to the sale of beer to the African working class consumers of the beer. And therefore, the restraining order had to be uh, annulled. But I felt that was not enough. What is the role of laughter in our new democracy? And I wrote a separate judgment, agreeing with the judgment, and I'd just like to read a little bit from that. Because this book, which is going to be, I think, given to a number of you later on, is The Strange Alchemy of Life and Law. Uh, what is the connection between intense, dramatic life experiences and the decisions you give as a judge, when you're supposed to be objective, completely objective, completely dispassionate. And this is what I wrote. The Constitution cannot oblige the doer to laugh. It can, however, prevent the cheerless from snuffing out the laughter of the blithe spirits amongst us. Indeed, if our society became completely solemn because of the exercise of state power at the behest of the worthy, not only would all irreverent laughter be suppressed, but temperance considerations could end up placing beer drinking itself in jeopardy. And I can see no reason in principle why a joke against the government can be tolerated but one at the expense of what used to be called big business cannot. Laughter too has its context. It can be derisory and punitive, imposing indignity on the weak at the hands of the powerful. 
On the other hand, it can be consolatory, even subversive, in the service of the marginalized social critics. What has been relevant in the present matter is that the context was one of laughter being used as a means of challenging economic power, resisting ideological hegemony, and advancing human dignity. We are not called upon to be arbiters of the taste displayed or judges of the humor offered, nor are we required to say how successful off it offers been in hitting its parodic mark. Whatever our individual sensibilities or personal opinions about the t-shirts might be, we are obliged to interpret the law in a manner which protects the right of bodies such as laugh it off to advance subversive humor. The protection must be there whether the humor is expressed by mimicry and drag or cartooning in the press or the production of lampoons on t-shirts. The fact that the comedian is paid and the newspaper and t-shirts are sold does not in itself convert the expression involved into a mere commodity nor does the fact that parodists could have voiced their discontent by phoning into a talk show rather than employ the trademark remove their protection. They chose parody as a means and invited young acolytes to join their gadfly laughter. A society that takes itself too seriously risks bottling up its tensions and treating every example of irreverence as a threat to its existence. Humor is one of the great solvents of democracy. It permits the ambiguities and contradictions of public life to be articulated in nonviolent forms. It promotes diversity. It enables a multitude of discontents to be expressed in a myriad of spontaneous ways. It is an elixir of constitutional health. Thank you so much. For name, of course, my name is Maho Khodi and I'm from here, I'm from Soweto. Um, I would like to know from you if you can talk a little bit about constructing the constitution and what the process was for getting such desperate um, factions to buy into the constitution. I'm really interested in the idea, especially for developing nations, of how we create a constitution where everybody feels invested in what has been created. And I think, you know, as a South African, I definitely know we've made tremendous strides, but I think we also know our country has very far to go. And in that, one of the things I'm really concerned about is people feeling invested in the country, that this is something that we need to build for ourselves. How do we create that in the constitution, in the law, and just every day with humor even? Thank you. Yeah. Uh, the first thing is we did it ourselves. We looked into each other's eyes. It took us six years. There were many breakdowns. It wasn't easy. It wasn't just sensible people sitting around a table and agreeing. We battled, we fought over every comma, every sentence, every semicolon. We even had an English language expert right at the end, sweeping through the whole thing, uh, came from Canada to make sure that the language was accessible. It was a very, very difficult process, but it was extremely it was central to the whole project that everybody should have a chance to come into it. And ultimately, we had a proportional representation for the uh, new parliament uh, in which even the tiniest groups would be represented so that no one could say afterwards, 
this is an ANC constitution. This is a National Party constitution. Everybody, everybody in that sense had a voice. And eventually, Parliament went out to the people. Uh, there were lots of public consultations. Millions of people wrote in. In that sense, in the latter stages, it was a very, very public and, and consultative process. Um, that, that just gives you, it gives you a glimpse. The Constitution is standing up so well because it was produced in a very democratic way. I don't think you, no, I was going to say you can't get a democratic constitution produced undemocratically, but the Japanese constitution was imposed and it's worked exceptionally well in Japan. Uh, I think it was, if I might mention that, people who were survivors of the Roosevelt period in, in, in the United States with very expansive democratic outlook on people's rights uh, had a very big hand in the creation of the Japanese constitution. And it seemed to work very well, and the Japanese people have given it its own particular imprimatur. I think we South Africans can be exceptionally proud of, of our constitution. On the constitutional court, I see how well it works, and we are pioneering a, a number of areas of new ways of legal thinking to give rights to particularly the most impoverished, the most marginalized, uh, the people who are seeking education, health, uh, and also demanding the right to feel free and the right to laugh.